From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tuberculosis, or TB, is a potentially serious infectious disease that mainly affects your lungs but can attack any part of the body. While TB is rare in the U.S., it's a leading killer worldwide. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. In the Middle Ages, before we knew what caused TB, TB was called the White Plague because people became very pale, they had no energy, it was called things like consumption. All we could do was put people in sanatoriums. Also on the program, why people with kidney disease should be cautious about taking supplements. And is commercial space flight safe? All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tuberculosis, or TB, is one of the world's deadliest diseases, believe it or not. In fact, one quarter of the world's population is infected with TB. Hard to believe. Mm -hmm. Over one million people worldwide die of TB every year, and TB is a leading killer of people who are infected with HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Amazing statistic. Yeah, fortunately, TB is not all that common in the U.S., but there are still close to 10,000 cases reported each year in this country. What causes it and how is it spread and who's at risk? Joining us in studio to talk about TB is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Priya Sampath-Kumar. Welcome back to the program. We haven't seen you for a while. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Dr. Sampath-Kumar, good to see you. You know, as I was writing this intro, I said 10,000 cases. Isn't it 100,000 cases in the United States? No, it's somewhere between nine and 10,000 cases each year. All right. Still a lot and not nearly as common here as in the rest of, of the world. But these statistics are pretty staggering, that one quarter of the people in the world... Why? TB can spread fairly easily in areas where you are living in close quarters with other people. So the uh, bacteria that causes TB is breathed into the air. And many people with TB live and work in situations where they are very close to other people. They are living in poorly ventilated situations. So TB passes from one person to the other. And when you're infected with TB, you may not know that you're infected. TB can persist in your body for many, many Many years, and you may not have symptoms until much later in life. So these people living with TB may not know they have TB at all. So your immune system sort of keeps it suppressed? It keeps it suppressed, and you develop what's called latent TB, where you have the bacteria in your body but no symptoms. And then if there's anything that stresses your body, another kind of infection, infection with HIV, for instance, or treatment with steroids, treatment with cancer medications, that allows the TB bug to reactivate and give you uh, what we call TB disease. I just heard a story about... um um, uh, TB in the world over the weekend. It was just a long-form piece about how is the, is the rates of TB worldwide on the rise? Is, is there something that is concerning worldwide health? Actually, overall, TB is declining in the world. It decreases by about 2% every year, but that's still not fast enough because the world's population is growing, and so the t- number of TB cases are kind of uh, stable across the world. What's 
happening with TB is that um, the bug is becoming more resistant and we're all living in fear that one day we won't have medications to really treat TB effectively. So we know that there was a significant increase in the number of people with TB in the mid-1980s because of HIV. And is that HIV weakens the immune system? Is that correct? Correct. And that's how TB, latent TB became active TB. Right. So during the 80s when uh, HIV started, cases of HIV started appearing, many of the cases were happening in the prison system where there were also people with TB living. And so these we didn't have good medications against HIV at that time. So their immune system became progressively more and more uh, weakened. And these people developed TB. The TB advanced very rapidly and it spread very uh, fast in prison systems, in healthcare institutions where these people were taken for care. And a lot of um, healthcare workers actually came down with TB during that time. Really, a TB is not all that contagious as compared to, let's say, measles. But if you're in close contact in an environment where the air is sort of stale, then it's easier to get it? Yes. So there are several different forms of TB. Some forms of TB are actually not infectious at all. So TB can pretty much attack every organ system in your body. It can go to the liver. It can go to the uh, kidneys. It can go to the uterus. It can go anywhere. And most of those forms of TB are not infectious. It's when TB is the lungs that you can breathe the bacteria out, and that's really the only form of TB that is infectious for the most part. And certain people are more infectious than others. So people whose immune systems are compromised, people who have large uh, lung lesions, a lot of involvement with TB in the lungs, they're more infectious than others. But you're right, it's not as infectious as, say, measles or even influenza. Even if it's in your lungs, does it just live there? or is It could just... So generally, TB enters your body through the lungs. You breathe it in, and then from the lungs, it disseminates through your blood to other organ systems. And it typically becomes dormant in one of these organ systems. So it could become quiet in your lungs. It could just be a tiny nodule on it that shows up on an x-ray. Um, and um, and then it can reactivate, and it can reactivate anywhere. Typically, so, wherever it became dormant is where it first reactivates. If you have TB, then do you have it for the rest of your life? Will you always test positive for it, or can you clear that? So, uh, when we do the TB skin test, what we're looking for is TB infection, which means you have the bacteria in your body, but you may or may not have disease. So, when the test is positive, it means you have the bacteria in your body. And then we do a series of tests to we ask you questions about your symptoms to determine whether you have TB disease or actual what we think of, what the layperson thinks of as actual TB. So there's a continuum between that latent TB to TB disease. Once you have the skin test positive, it means you've been exposed to the TB bacteria, you do stay positive pretty much for life. Under rare situations, you can lose that positivity. What you're testing for is immunity to TB. And so as your immune system becomes weaker, you can actually lose that positive TB skin test. And what do you do to confirm the diagnosis if the skin test is positive? Is there a blood so test for TB? TB? There is a blood test for TB. So the skin test looks for, and the blood test both look for the same things. The blood test is a little bit more specific. So with the um, uh, skin test, it, catch, it casts a fairly wide net, and infections with certain bacteria that are related to TB but not TB can result in the uh, skin test being positive. So then we look at the person's... Uh, 
uh, exposure history? Have they lived or worked in places where they could have been exposed to TB? If there's absolutely no indication that they've had that exposure, then we might try to do the blood test to see whether or not this was really TB or one of those other bacteria that acted like TB with regards to the skin test. What if you're in the U.S. and you have a positive skin test? Then what happens to your life? I mean, do you have to go into seclusion for the rest of your life or what happens? No, no, that's a very common misconception. So the positive skin test just indicates that you have been exposed to TB and you may have the TB in your uh, system. So the next thing is to to talk to you about your exposure, etc., and then uh, do some tests to see whether you're infectious to others because that's what we're most worried about. Will you pass it on to others? Do you need to be in seclusion? So if you have no uh, symptoms at all of TB, the next step would be to get a chest x-ray just to make sure that you're not having TB in the lungs, therefore the infectious form. If the chest x-ray is negative, then depending on the situation, we might do other tests uh, to look for TB in other organs, but that is less urgent because you're not infectious. So the it, ruling out infectious TB is the next thing we do when we find out you have a positive skin test. And what about symptoms? If you do have uh, TB involving the lung, what, cough, I would assume? Yes, typically people have cough. Uh, they may have uh, sometimes cough up a little bit of blood in their um, uh, sputum, when, especially early morning. Uh, they also might have just generalized symptoms of TB, which can be uh, nonspecific weight loss, tiredness, lack of appetite. So, you know, in the Middle Ages, before we knew what caused TB, TB was called the white plague because people became very pale, they had no energy, it was called things like consumption, and at that time, all we could do was put people in sanatoriums and, you know, fresh air, good food, those were the treatments for TB. Would you survive that, or would you just go to the sanitarium to die? So it was kind of a double-edged sword. So you would go to the sanitariums. Everyone else there had TB, um, so you could pick up another strain of TB. But for some people, if, you know, the reason they had TB was because they were had poor nutrition, improving nutrition immune, improves your immune system, so that could actually work. And so some people did survive, although the survival rate was nowhere near as good as now. All right, infectious disease specialist Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar on the topic of tuberculosis, a disease that kills over 1 million people every year worldwide. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll continue to talk talk about TB, including the treatment, uh, complications, and what we do know about prevention. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with infectious disease specialist Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar. Our topic is tuberculosis, a disease that's fairly common worldwide, fortunately not so common in the United States. And before we talk about treatment, I want to ask you, we did talk uh, a little bit about risk factors, and the one we mentioned was people with HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, because the virus weakened your immune system. Who else is at risk for tuberculosis? 
anyone who has problems with their immune system and that actually includes people at the extremes of age so very young children and the elderly are also at risk for tb uh because their immune systems in the children in the case of children isn't developed as well and in older people it has been weakened with age the other group is people who are receiving steroids we use steroids for a number of different mm-hmm. situations um like rheumatoid arthritis um other what we call autoimmune disease is uh people who are getting cancer chemotherapy uh that weakens your immune system and then um uh people who have organ transplants they also get immunosuppressed to protect the oh. organs Sure. Yeah, weakens your immune system, so you're set up for TB. But well, it doesn't happen very often. Right. No. I'm always asked, you know, you're asked, have you traveled recently outside of the country? So, like you said, um, it's a greater problem in other parts of the world. If you travel to those other parts, then should you go and get tested when you come back from your travels? So it really depends on what you're doing in the places you travel to. So if you traveled to a country that has high rates of TB uh, and you were a tourist, it's very unlikely that you would come back with TB. If you went to provide healthcare in another country, you and you were there for more than 2 weeks, yes, you should get uh tested. But, you know, being a tourist going to look at go sightseeing in other countries, it's very unlikely that you would acquire TB. So, I love traveling. I don't want to discourage anyone from traveling. <laughs> is is there anything you should do before you go to one of those countries? With regards to TB or yeah, just in general? Yeah, with regard to TB. No, really. Uh if you're going there as a tourist, you don't have to worry. Um All right, let's talk about treatment. Um because I assume that when these people went were Uh, to the sanatoriums, there was no treatment. We didn't have antibiotics, but now we do. Yes, so TB is definitely treatable. TB is actually curable. You will come out um, on the other side eventually. It's just that it takes a long time to treat. So even for very drug-sensitive TB, we need to treat with about uh, initially with four drugs and then um, uh, four with three drugs after the first two months. And typically, treatment is at least six months. Some people, depending on what part of the body the TB affects, might lead, need longer treatments than that. And these four Four drugs come as multiple pills, so you could end up taking, you know, up to 12 pills a day. Um, they're safe, but they do have side effects. A lot of people have nausea; they don't want to take these pills, and just taking something for such an extended period of time is difficult. So, in many parts of the world, this is why drug resistance is increasing because people stop taking it. Once you start taking your meds, you feel better in about a month, and then you think you're cured and you stop taking it, and that leads to drug resistance. In the US, anyone who's diagnosed with TB actually gets something called DOT or directly observed therapy because we're so concerned about people stopping their meds. We have um public health workers who will go out to deliver your meds to you daily or have you come to the health department and take it under supervision and watch you take them. Um it it's it's no joke and you don't want to have drug resistant tuberculosis. So why is this bacteria so hard to kill? Yes. So the bacteria is very very slow growing and different drugs act at different points in its life cycle. So you might uh kill one population of bacteria that it's that is in one phase of its life cycle with one of the drugs and then there's a population there's so many of these bacteria in your system there's another sort of population that's just hanging out and watching the destruction and and then it watching their buddies work. Yes. Yeah. And then they 
uh, flourish during that time, and then you need another drug. So giving all four drugs, we're catching the bugs at all different stages in their life cycle and hopefully eliminating the entire population. And what happens if you don't treat it? So if you don't treat TB, if you have TB infection, uh, some proportion of these people will go on to just have the positive skin test, never have any symptoms. Some people will go on to develop active TB. And those, and, and there is a step in between from when you have the latent TB to active TB where you can actually intervene. And that's your best chance at preventing TB in the future. So if you give these people with latent TB one medication for six to nine months, you can keep them, lower their chances by more than 90% of ever having active TB. That's why doing the skin tests at early on in the disease and treating these people will significantly reduce the burden of TB worldwide. How much uh, research is being done on tuberculosis? Are you aware of what we can expect in tuberculosis treatment going forward? So we're actually in a really exciting era. So we now have tests that make diagnosing TB easier. So active TB, we use, it used to take six to eight weeks for the bacteria to grow in cultures. I told you it was very slow mm-hmm. growing. Now we have tests where we routine cultures can pick it up within two weeks. So the time to diagnosis of active TB has been reduced. Used. We also have rapid tests, um, molecular tests that can um, actually make the diagnosis of TB, not TB, within a few days. And we also have tests that look for markers for resistance, so we can figure out whether the TB drugs we generally use are going to work or not within a few days. So all of these, in the terms of diagnosis, uh, have been uh, fantastic um, advancements in the past few years. Uh, There has not been as much progress in research in terms of finding out new drugs for TB. In the last 40 years, actually, there have been only three new drugs approved. Mm -hmm. But this year, um, we have a brand new drug that received FDA approval for treatment of drug-resistant TB. So if you think treating TB is hard, treating drug-resistant TB is even harder because it's usually uh, 24 months of treatment or longer. A lot of the treatment is intravenous, so it's not as easy as just taking a pill. This new drug, uh, they hope, will revolutionize uh, treatment of multidrug-resistant TB uh, with just oral medications in six months. So that vaccine that they give to children in developing countries is called BCG still? It's called correct? BCG. And then I assume someone somewhere is working on a vaccine uh, for everyone. Yes, and there hasn't been a lot of progress in that arena um, Something for you to work on next yeah. week, huh? Yeah. <laughs> next week. <laughs> Tuberculosis is still one of the deadliest diseases in the world. TB infections began increasing in the mid-1980s because of the HIV virus, which weakens the immune system. And I believe I heard you say, maybe it was before the program, that TB is the commonest cause of infertility in developing countries. Relatively rare in the United States, fortunately, but you are at increased risk if you have a weakened immune system. Our thanks to infectious disease expert and TB specialist, no, infectious disease specialist and TB expert, Dr. <laughs> Priya Sampath Kumar. Dr. Sampath Kumar, thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how supplements may cause harm for those with kidney disease. And consumer space flight, is it safe? Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Hypothyroidism, or underactive thyroid, is a condition in which your thyroid gland doesn't produce enough of certain hormones. It may not cause noticeable symptoms in the early stages, but over time, untreated hypothyroidism can cause a number of health problems such as obesity, joint pain, infertility, and heart disease. For mild cases of hypothyroidism, not all patients need treatment. Occasionally, the condition may resolve without treatment. Follow-up appointments are important to monitor hypothyroidism over time. If hypothyroidism doesn't go away on its own within several months, then treatment is necessary. Because if left untreated, the condition eventually may lead to those serious health problems. So, the thyroid gland is a small butterfly-shaped gland in the front of the neck that makes the hormone hormones that maintain the rate at which your body uses fats and carbohydrates, help control your body temperature, influence your heart rate, and help regulate the production of proteins. Hypothyroidism develops when the thyroid doesn't make enough hormones. As a result, your metabolism slows down. Common early symptoms of hypothyroidism include unexplained weight gain, fatigue, and low energy. It also may cause dry skin, constipation, sensitivity to cold, a puffy face, muscle weakness, hoarseness, and joint pain or stiffness. Hypothyroidism is diagnosed using a blood test that measures the level of thyroid hormones in the body. That blood test is repeated at regular intervals to monitor thyroid hormone levels. If it persists for more than a few months, again, treatment often is recommended. It means taking a daily oral medication. Work with your health care provider to set up a schedule for your follow-up visits. With careful monitoring and treatment when necessary, hypothyroidism can be effective controlled, eliminating symptoms and decreasing your risk of complications. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A study was recently published in the American Journal of Kidney Disease, and it found that one-third of Americans with chronic kidney disease take at least one supplement, and most do it without telling their doctor or talking to their doctor about it. For people with kidney disease, taking supplements can be especially concerning since they have a harder time filtering medications, wastes, and excess fluids from the body. Here to discuss is the senior author of this study, Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Rosalina McCoy. Welcome back to the program. Good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Yep, nice to have you, especially to talk about this. What prompted Mm -hmm. you to do this study? I think I work in our primary care clinic, and so many of my patients have chronic kidney disease. And I think I was struck with just how often people take multivitamin supplements wanting to improve their health, often not even tell us about it because they assume it's safe. And yet we don't know whether they are truly safe for people with kidney disease. So you said you a lot of people with kidney disease. How mm-hmm. many really? And, and isn't it sort of uh, it seems unusual to me that that's the one organ where we've got a backup? We do. Unfortunately, I think when people have kidney disease, both kidneys tend to be affected. You know, about 15% of Americans have some degree of kidney disease. Now, not all stages of kidney disease uh, present to the degree that require modifications in, in medications or food. So these people are at risk for worsening kidney functions, but can still take supplements, medications, much like everyone else, as long as they're cautious. But the people we focus on in our study, they have moderate or even advanced kidney disease. Now, this affects a lot of people, 
uh, in our cohort, it's almost 16 million American adults. Have moderate or severe mm-hmm. kidney disease. Okay. Exactly. And these are the people who really should be concerned about the medications and supplements uh, that they are taking. Because they can damage the, the kidney or because uh, the kidneys, which normally filter these supplements, aren't working well enough to, to filter them and get them out of the system? It's both. Okay. Uh, when it comes to medications, where we have a lot more information about how uh, medications affect or are metabolized by people with chronic kidney disease, we're concerned about some medications being nephrotoxic, so actively harming the kidneys and either causing acute kidney injury that can lead to hospitalization even, or it can gradually worsen kidney function. You know, ibuprofen, for example, is a notorious example of medications that worsen kidney function. For other medications, they don't damage kidney function, but they can't, either the medications themselves or their metabolites can't be filtered, and they are, those byproducts can be toxic. Now, supplements, just because they're not given by prescription or they're not medications, they're also active compounds, and they affect our patients the same exact way. So they can be damaging uh, to the kidney, or they can themselves or their components or byproducts accumulate in in the context of kidney disease. You know, a class of uh, supplements we looked at, which we call high-risk, defined by the National Kidney Foundation, they're considered high-risk because they contain uh, potassium or phosphorus. So, and those uh, minerals are to be used with caution and limited by people with kidney disease. Potassium and phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And uh, which kind of supplements are, are those in? Uh, what are the names of some supplements that would contain those? Yeah, so the most common uh, w- that we found was flaxseed. Oh. So flaxseed is very high in phosphorus, and it was one of the most common high-risk supplements taken by people of all stages with kidney disease. Flaxseed. Mm-hmm. You know what? This is just really something to consider, <laughs> actually, because what I was going to say was mm-hmm. uh, the number of patients who don't think that the over, over-the-counter medication or the supplements they're taking is anything they even need to bother or trouble their um, health care provider with. Mm-hmm. But when you say flaxseed, I consider that a food, mm-hmm. and I would never report that as a supplement that I'm taking. And I think that's really the biggest message that we hope that our patients and, you know, my colleagues and clinicians take away from this is that I think everything that people consume, whether it be prescription, over-the-counter medication, an herbal supplement, or even things that we add to our foods, they are all potentially active and they all affect our health. And we hope that they do it in a positive way. And with flaxseed, there's a lot of benefits, right? right. There's protein. Phosphorus is health is great for people without kidney disease. There's healthy uh, fatty acids. So we take the, all of these things to help our health. But we have to recognize that in many situations, patients may be affected differently. And chronic kidney disease is the most common example of that, but certainly not the only one. So in my practice, I always make a point to ask people about any herbals, supplements, vitamins, additives to food, uh, mixes, shakes. And you kind of specify all of that because that's all a dietary supplement. Are you convinced that there are any supplements out there that actually help people and improve people's health? 
I think we all take supplements and vitamins to improve our health. You know, the word vitamins really suggests, you know, vitality, health, uh, and we think more of a good thing is always better. Now, the data... Yeah, that's a misconception. That's absolutely a misconception because too much of a good thing can hurt us. For most healthy people, taking multivitamins is not harmful because the amounts of vitamins and minerals are kind of at the recommended daily allowance, even a little bit more, but it's still safe for most people. But that's not the case for people who can't filter them or excrete them, like people with with kidney disease. And very high doses of many vitamins and many minerals are potentially harmful. You said there's a pretty fair 15%, I think you said, of the population has got some form of kidney Mm -hmm. disease. That's a pretty big number. It is. Kidney disease is very common. It's growing uh, in prevalence because... Because of diabetes or or why? Because of diabetes, as we uh, age, uh, the kidney disease increases. People are living longer. Mm -hmm. High blood pressure, which is associated with obesity, is one of the most common causes of kidney disease together with diabetes. So as people are getting older and having multiple comorbidities, the presence of kidney disease increases. And the other problem is that, you know, when we buy a, multi- a supplement and we look in the back on the nutritional information, not everything that is important for our patients with kidney disease to know is on there. Mm-hmm. And if it's not listed, it doesn't mean that it's not there. So when we look at flaxseed, for example, often they will not list how much phosphorus is in there. Now, if you Google it and go to any of those nutritional websites, it will tell you how much and what percent of the recommended daily allowance for people without kidney disease it is, but it's not on the bottle. In the ingredients, it will say flaxseed. It's not going to tell you what else is in there. How about if people with kidney disease just avoid multivitamins and supplements? I think we don't want people to avoid things that may be helpful. So people with moderate kidney disease, so stage three, they can take a simple multivitamin as long as they look through you know, the nutritional information, make sure there's nothing excessive in there, and that they're not taking anything at the same time that has more of the same thing. You know, if they're drinking a lot of milk, for example, and they take a multivitamin, well, the level of potassium and phosphorus can be too high. People with more advanced kidney disease should not, probably not take a regular multivitamin, but there are multivitamins designed specifically for people with kidney disease. And those do uh, take into account you know, the, the minerals uh, that should be avoided. Well, I guess the bottom line is if you're taking supplements, whether they're herbal or dietary, it's important to talk to your doctor, especially for people who have kidney disease. And you might also ask your doctor if any of those are doing you any good while you're at it. (laughs) Dr. Rosalina McCoy is an endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. When we come back. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you have ever dreamed of becoming a space traveler, your chance may be coming. As we all celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, it's looking like 2019 is the year that space tourism finally becomes a reality. According to aerospace medicine expert, Dr. Jan Stefanik, there are a lot of unknowns and reasons to be cautious about civilian space travel. He joins us by telephone uh, from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Stefanik. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dr. Stefanik. Good to talk to you. So first of all, tell us about the specialty of aerospace medicine. What, what does that mean? What do you do? 
So aerospace medicine is the specialty that deals with the unique environmental challenges of flight that impact the human body. So, for example, altitude-related changes, acceleration, absence of gravity, and the adaptation of the human body. So this encompasses us as travelers to terrestrial altitude or an aircraft, passengers or pilots, and when venturing into space. How do you apply that clinically in your practice? Well, I see pilots. We do examinations to make sure if they, for instance, have had medical conditions that they're safe to go back to flights. We take care of uh, patients who happen to struggle with exposure to altitude. Many conditions uh, that we take care of clinically turn out to actually worsen when you go to altitude. And, you know, being in Arizona, you know, we have high mountains surrounding us. And when people want to get out of the heat, they usually go up. And as a result of that, things get worse with certain health conditions. I can only imagine if you are affected by altitude just going up a mountain that space travel might, do you just need to cross that off your list? Not necessarily, no. So when you say, uh, when we're talking about commercial space flight, are are we talking about, you know, going to Mars or just going up and then back down again? (laughs) Or what what exactly does a commercial space flight look like? You know, for most of the higher volume of planned flights, it's going to be suborbital. Suborbital means that you go to just above 100 kilometers above the Earth, which is suborbit. You experience a brief period of time of weightlessness, and then you come back down. If you count the time that it takes to travel to that altitude, part with rocket, part with carrier aircraft, it's and then one and a half hours, maybe two hours worth of time. And then there's other destinations. You can travel to the space stations, as some space passengers have done commercially. Or, you know, in the future, there is plans and people have put down money to travel to the moon and there is interest in Mars. Let's divide this up into, if we talk about the health risks and the potential hazards of, tra- of space travel. First of all, in the, in the suborbital flights, what, what could happen there? What are your concerns? Well, you know, first and foremost, you know, the suborbital flights, because they're going to be short, on, based on the data that we have in centrifuge exposures that the FAA has run studies on, it's going to be safe for most individuals. Um, and the key concern is going to be some of the environmental challenges that people experience, such as the vibration, the noise, you know, maybe even the anxiety of being in that situation. That is hard to simulate on planet Earth. And then when you get into suborbit and you actually get to experience the uh, freedom of lack of gravity, there is the concern of some motion sickness because your inner ear is uh, expecting to have a matching gravitational input, so gravity-related input that matches what your eyes see. And when you get into microgravity, that goes away. So your eyes, you know, see um, a wonderful scenery and you're tempted to do cartwheels. You know, the problem is that your inner ear does not send matching information to the brain, and that among astronauts has been well known to be an issue for 48 to 72 hours with some motion tickets. Do you, can you, um, I don't know, expose a traveler to conditions that they might experience up in space beforehand? Is there any way that you can simulate that so they can get prepared for it, or is it just, yeah, you're going to be sick the whole time? No, 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 no. The expectation, I don't expect that individuals are going to be sick the whole time. We don't have the data on um, a lot of individuals who have done that. 
Um, so I experienced the vast majority of individuals you know, are going to do well. And the spaceflight companies, for that very reason, tend to have a program where they um, stipulate or suggest that individuals get analogous environment training, which means that they expose them to an environment of high altitude in chambers. They expose them to G-forces that they're expected to see with a visual simulation of what's going to be happening when they are going to blast off with uh, the rocket. So that way, individuals can get prepared for what it will feel like, what the forces are, and that really, that training will cut down on some of the anxiety that can be induced. Is there required training or will there be? So, you know, the question that you're asking is twofold. One is, is there a federal standard? So, in other words, is there a governing agency um, federally, um, notably the FAA, that says you must have this level of training? And the answer is no. The FAA, especially early on, as this is a nascent industry, has taken a liberal approach stating that the only thing they stipulate from the operators is that they provide the individuals with emergency uh, situation training. Um, and a full informed consent so they're aware of, you know, what sort of environments they're going into and what sort of forces they will be exposed to. But all of the training that is currently being done by the space, the future space operators is voluntary and they're doing this very deliberately to make sure that there is optimum safety. So what would you recommend? Are you saying that before anybody gets to do this, there should be some more oversight that some more steps that they have to go through? No, at this point in time, you know, for the suborbital space flight, um, uh, flights that are planned, um, because they're short, because the time in microgravity is short, um, I do not believe that there is going to be need for any additional regulation at this point. You know, we will learn as many people fly, you know, what if any problems and the quite possible situation is that there is not going to be much in the way of problems in the first place. And as a result of that, not much in the need for additional safety regulations. A lot, a lot we don't know. That's why I want you to go first. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> we'll find go. out what doesn't work from the people who go first. <laughs> that's right. So how high do you have to go to get into microgravity? Well, if you go to 100 kilometers. So um, that's how many above, miles? Uh, it's about 66 miles. Okay. So and if you get there, you're going to get microgravity. And then what concerns do you have on the uh, potential longer commercial space flights, with the, the orbital flights? When we go into orbit, you know, it's all somewhat proportional to the amount of time that you spend in microgravity. So the human body is amazing in that it's capable of adapting. Um, but when you don't have gravity, your bones and your muscles don't get the stimulus that are required of them um, that we have here on Earth. And as a result of that, deconditioning occurs, you know, bone loss occurs. You know, those are the key things, you know, as we're looking towards planetary travel and beyond low Earth orbit. Um, early on, when people come up to space, there's fluid shifts because uh, your body is now not subjected to gravity. And as a result of that, a lot of the fluid that we typically have in the vessels in our large um, vessels in the extremities now comes to the central compartments. Individuals complain of some congestion. You know, they sometimes have headaches. You know, the spine elongates a little bit because the intervertebral discs get to be a little bit uh, more juicy. And as a result of that, back pain can ensue. You know, on rare occasions, individuals, you know, have developed uh, in the first 48 to 72 hours urinary retention. Um, but there have been merely a couple of case reports. So I wouldn't stipulate that that would be a big issue in the big scheme of things. Uh, but you might get a little taller. 
You do. <laughs> you do. For a very <laughs> short amount of time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Jan Stepanik is a spaceflight doctor and aerospace medical expert from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. As commercial spaceflight actually becomes a reality, it's probably a good idea to make sure that you have what it takes to blast off. Do you have what it takes? I don't think so. I'm either. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to Dr. Jan Stepanik. Thanks, Dr. Stepanik. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.com. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.